Hi, this is Kendall Boyson, professional life and recovery coach, and you're listening to Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope. Hi there. Thanks for joining me. On this show, we're adopting a new perspective and a new mantra. Never stop quitting. Wait, that sounds ridiculous. I mean, no one likes a quitter, right? Wrong. If you've ever tried to stop something and then fell off the wagon, given into temptation, or just lost your way, should that be it? You quit? End of story? I think not. Pick yourself up and quit again, and again, and then again if you need to, but never stop quitting. Sometimes the first time just doesn't stick. So this show isn't about the art of quitting, but the endless pursuit of freedom. Now, there's a spin I can get behind. Are you ready to wave the white flag again? I heard the sentiment, never stop quitting, from a doctor of mine. At first, I thought it was a nervous response to checking my chart and realizing, yet again, I had quit smoking. You see, I had quit smoking the last time I was there. And here I was a year later, letting her know of my newfound success. Instead of chastising me for being unsuccessful, shaming me for succumbing, or making me feel guilty for not quite being strong enough to see it through, she simply said, well, never stop quitting, and we moved on. Wow, how lovely it was to feel support instead of humiliated. I'm not saying that's what caused it to stick, but I've been smoke-free for over 10 years. How many times have we wanted to change a habit or behavior, but we're unsuccessful? I'm guessing you're human, so I'm guessing every one of us can recall something that meets that criteria, if not a few things. Failure is just a part of life. Some say failure is the best teacher. So imagine failing at your attempts of quitting something you're needing freedom from. Well, that didn't work. Oh well, moving on to something else. Whether it's drugs, alcohol, caffeine, sugar, gossip, negativity, anxiety, promiscuity, or doubt, you can be freed. You deserve ownership over your life and your life choices. You have the power to dictate what you choose to participate in and what you don't. If you don't have the power to heal yourself, you have the power to seek help. Quitting isn't even the first step coming to terms with the reality that you need to make a change in your life is step one. Then, asserting your authority over that right is step two. If your intention doesn't go to plan, you can't just walk away. You owe it to yourself to try again. Quit again and turn your life in a new direction with a different approach. As you know, I love a slight twist of perception because sometimes that's all it takes to make some life revelations. You know, you can Google never stop quitting and nothing comes up. Oh, there are plenty of results for never quitting and why you should never give up. But what if we already did? Now what? Noelle gets us started with her ideas on how to stop falling off the wagon for good, 
found on her blog, Coconuts and Kettlebells. If you've ever fallen off the wagon before, you know there's a lot more involved than simply having a few indulgence at a friend's party. When people go outside of the rules they're trying to follow or keep, it often results in feelings of inadequacy, disappointment, and shame. These reactions are rooted in the belief that our interactions with food affect our own self-worth, for example. Following the rules makes you a good person, and when those rules aren't upheld, you're a failure, and you suck. No wonder nobody likes you. But what if that's actually false, and being on the wagon is at the root of your inability to remain consistent and enjoy the process of pursuing health? Spoiler alert, bingo. Let's get real for a second. That wagon, yeah, it doesn't actually exist. The wagon we all refer to is really just a strict set of rules we hope will give us more control over our health, body, or other people's perception of us. When the rules are being followed, you're in the wagon. And when a rule is broken, you're out. This mentality can be incredibly ineffective at creating long-term behavior changes because it turns the pursuit of health into an all-or-nothing occasion. Instead of enjoying a cookie and going back to eating the foods that make you feel your best the next day, breaking a rule results in working your way through an entire tub of cookie dough in a matter of hours. Being on the wagon can also impose too many behavior changes at once, which creates an overabundance of stress, especially when other life stress is thrown into the mix. Because stress and willpower are biologically incompatible, when a change or a combination of changes are too stressful, they're eventually abandoned for more familiar processes. But here's where the wheels really start to fall off. The wagon mentally initiates a cycle. Falling off the wagon results in guilt, and that guilt often leads us straight into the arms of punishing behaviors like more restriction and more rules, which becomes our new wagon. Each time perfection isn't maintained, it results in defeat, self-criticism, and desperation. And the only way to rectify these feelings is to get back on the wagon, which starts the process over again. This never-ending cycle is incredibly taxing, physically, mentally, and emotionally, and can drain life's experiences of all enjoyment. Am I right? Well, it may seem like going off plan is the catalyst that creates all the problems. It's actually the guilt that keeps the cycle spinning. Guilt occurs when we have the mindset that there are good and bad behaviors around food, fitness, or really anything. And our ability to uphold certain behaviors affects our own morality and worth. This mindset is not only based on false assumptions, it's also a big reason why people start to feel worse about themselves, their body, capabilities, or value. That and an industry that likes to make money off of you believing there is something wrong with you. Stopping the cycle starts with understanding that food is not a moral compass. While you may find certain foods work best for you, food is not inherently good or bad, 
And your self-worth as a human being has absolutely nothing to do with your ability to eat a specific way or do a workout as prescribed. Yes, of course, there are foods that are more nourishing for your body than others, but this doesn't mean you have done something wrong or need to be punished for eating a certain food. Giving food morality means giving the power to the food. And when food has the power, interactions with food are accompanied by fear, anxiety, and judgment, which makes it virtually impossible to have any sort of balance or consistency when pursuing good health. So how do you stop falling off the wagon? Huh. If you find yourself struggling to stay on the wagon, there's a simple solution that will solve the problem once and for all. Get out of the darn wagon. I'm not just suggesting you throw in the towel on pursuing health. Instead, stop seeing health as a predefined road that requires perfection. Getting out of the wagon means understanding that the pursuit of health is a journey. There is no on or off. There is life. And our experiences help us learn what is going to serve us best in the long run. This allows us to nourish our body throughout all seasons of life without having to muster up the motivation to start over or wait until we have it all together. It also recognizes that health is the result of a number of different factors to include our mental, emotional, and social well-being. It's not just about what we eat or our ability to eat perfectly according to plan. Hmm. Ditching the wagon takes self-imposed stress out of the equation and allows us to live with more flexibility and mindfulness as we pursue becoming more capable and experiencing all that life has to offer. This does not mean that guidelines or choosing to abstain from something that is not serving you is somehow wrong or ineffective. Not being on the wagon gives you the freedom to do exactly that. Make choices that are right for your body without fear of judgment or the obsession that often occurs when we categorize, let's say, food as bad or perceive we can't have something. Understanding that you don't need to do health and fitness perfectly to have a long and healthy life allows you to enjoy the process and focus energy towards living in the fullest right now instead of waiting until that wagon comes around. There's no such thing as where you should be. There's where you are and where you're going. So let's leave the wagon to the Oregon Trail because frankly, it's totally cramping our style. I actually have fantastic willpower when I think about it, but only for something I truly want and am ready to tackle. Isn't that just it? We get a lot of advice from friends, family, spouses, heck, even strangers. Don't look up self-help articles or you'll be bombarded with every single self-help strategy and product on the planet. You can find programs that advertise five minutes a day will give you the body of a lifetime to a patch that promises that all your cravings will be squelched. There are endless articles about the cause and effect from true research 
to scare tactics that just don't work. I had a doctor tell me that there could be a pill you take once a day to live forever and people would still skip a day. Human will. It's a curious thing. Psychologist Katarina Lino offers some insight in her article, The Psychology of Willpower, Training the Brain for Better Decisions. In 2011, 20% of the respondents of the Stress in America survey reported a lack of willpower as the greatest obstacle to change. We rely on willpower to exercise, diet, save money, quit smoking, stop drinking, overcoming procrastination, and ultimately to accomplish any of our goals. It impacts every area of our lives. Willpower is not a new concept, but we still don't have widespread awareness as to how to nurture it. Spiritual leader and activist Mahatma Gandhi described willpower by noting that strength does not come from physical capacity. It comes from indomitable will. Many people have an intuitive sense of what this willpower is, but lack the scientific knowledge to understand the forces that undermine it. How can we work with willpower instead of against its stubborn nature? They say knowledge is power, and in this case, knowledge is willpower. So what is it? Well, people use different definitions to describe willpower. Drive, determination, self-discipline, self-control, self-regulation, effortful control. At the core of willpower is the ability to resist short-term temptations and desires in order to achieve long-term goals. It's the prevailing source of long-term satisfaction over instant gratification. Dan Milliman said, willpower is the key to success. Successful people strive no matter what they feel by applying their will to overcome apathy, doubt, or fear. Studies show that people scoring high on self-control are more apt at regulating behavioral, emotional, and attention impulses to achieve long-term goals when compared to more impulsive individuals. For most of us, when we think of willpower, the first thing to pop into our mind are the challenges that require us to resist temptation. How do we refuse that chocolate cake, the department store, the internet, the cigarette, or the after-work drink? It's hard. We have trouble saying no when our bodies and senses are all screaming yes. Psychologist Kelly McGonigal calls this the I won't power. McGonagall is a frequent lecturer at Stanford University and the author of The Willpower Instinct. In this latest text, she tackles the concept of self-control and why it matters. According to her, saying no is just one part of what willpower is. But the other part of willpower is saying yes to things you know will lead you closer to your goals. It's the ability to do what you need to do, even if you don't feel like it, or a part of you doesn't want to follow through. She calls this the I will power. Willpower, according to McGonagall, is comprised of three things. I won't power, 
I will power, I want power. Our brains have the capacity to harness all three of these capacities. And as McGonagall conveys, the development of these abilities is at the core of what it means to be human. The prefrontal cortex, the PFC, is that part of our brains right behind our forehead and our eyes that are responsible for abstract thinking, analyzing thoughts, and regulating behavior. When you meditate or ponder conflicting thoughts, predict outcomes or choices, and decide right versus wrong, you're relying on your PFC. The PFC controls what we pay attention to, how we express our personality, what we think about how we feel. In other words, it controls a lot of who we are. The PFC expanded in size throughout human evolution, which indicates a natural selection process in favor of its continued growth and evolution. While the brain itself has only increased in size about threefold over the last five million years, the PFC has increased its size sixfold over this period of time. As social animals, this makes sense. We evolved to regulate our behavior based on what is needed for healthy group interaction. Studies show that this part of the brain is the last to mature. Its development is not complete till around 25, which is likely why otherwise intelligent and sensible teens still engage in high-risk or excessive behaviors, even though they understand the potential consequences. Robert Sapolsky, a neurobiologist at Stanford, believes that the main job of our PFC is to encourage the brain towards doing the harder thing. Ordering the salad instead of the steak, going to the gym when your friends are going to the pub, getting started on that project you've been dreaming about even though it's easier to procrastinate. The I will, I won't, and I want powers that comprise willpower draw on different parts of the PFC. The brain region near the upper left side is responsible for the I will, helping you start and stick with not-so-fun or stressful tasks. The right side handles the I won't, refraining you from acting on your every impulse and craving. And the third region, which tackles the I want, sits lower in the middle of the PFC, keeping track of your goals and desires. This is the part of your brain that reminds you that you want to live a healthy and fulfilled life when everything else in your body is telling you to eat that bacon until you're stuffed. So how can you strengthen your willpower? Well, here are five ways. Aristotle said, knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. Once we understand the root source of our behaviors, it's easier, though still difficult to work towards our goals. Scientific studies highlight exactly how the following behavioral changes can influence willpower. Number one, improve your self-awareness. 
How many food choices do you make in a day? One study asked people this very question. On average, participants guessed they would make about 14 choices per day. If you carefully track all your decisions, the average number would be 227, which shows that the vast majority of people aren't even aware of all the food decisions they are constantly making. Any behavior that you aren't aware of is much harder to manage. Most of our choices are made on autopilot without any awareness of what's really driving them or the effects that we'll have in our lives. So the first step to changing any behavior is self-awareness. Self-awareness is the ability to recognize what we're doing and why we're doing it. Our thought process, emotions, and reasons for acting are an important part of making better choices. With fast-paced lifestyles, constant distractions, and overstimulation, self-awareness is not something everyone realizes. How does this relate to willpower? Well, Baba Shiv, professor of marketing at Stanford Graduate Business School, found that distracted people are more likely to give in to temptation. For example, distracted shoppers are more sensitive to in-store promotions and more likely to purchase items that are not on their shopping list. One thing you can do to increase your self-awareness is to keep track of all your choices in a given day. At the end of the day, analyze which ones supported your long-term goals and which ones didn't. We're up to number two, meditate. Meditation doesn't mean you need to find a quiet view and begin your days by watching the sunrise. Although, if you have access and the ability to do that, that's awesome. Meditation can be as simple as taking five deep, calming breaths the next time you're stuck in a long line. The neurological benefits are huge. Historically, the psychological paradigm was that we had a fixed brain, meaning you were born a certain way and over time your brain will decline. This is no longer what science reveals. With modern technology and research, today's neuroscientists know that the brain is responsive to experience. It actually changes based on what you do. When you practice a certain behavior, you're strengthening the neural connections for that behavior, making it more accessible and more likely to occur. Practice worrying and you get better at worrying because your brain region associated with that will grow denser. Practice concentration, and you'll also get better at it, and your brain will respond accordingly. You can also train your brain for better self-control, and meditation is one of the best ways to do that. Why? Because meditation has a powerful effect on a wide range of skills that relate to self-control, like attention, focus, stress management, impulse control, and self-awareness. When you meditate, you're training your mind to focus on a particular given point, let's say your breath, paying attention and observing thoughts, emotions, and impulses without identifying or acting on them. You're literally training multiple important skills at once. 
Regular meditators have more gray matter in the prefrontal cortex and other areas of the brain responsible for self-awareness. And contrary to what you may think, it doesn't take years of practice to observe changes in the brain. One study showed that only three hours of meditation resulted in improved attention and self-control, and 11 hours led to visible changes in the brain. Number three, exercise. For a lot of people, exercise is their willpower challenge. But exercise is one of the best tools you can use to strengthen your willpower. Megan Oten and Ken Chang devised a study of treatment to enhance self-control. The participants were six men and 18 women, ages 18 to 50. After two months of treatment, these people were eating less junk food, eating more healthy foods, watching less TV, studying more, saving more money, and procrastinating less. These participants were given free memberships to a gym and encouraged to use it. They were not asked to make any other changes, and these were people who didn't work out regularly before the study. For the first month of treatment, they exercised on an average of once per week, but increased to three times per week by the end of the study. With such a small number of participants, it would be worthwhile for other researchers to continue the study and compare their results. Regardless, you may be wondering, how much exercise do I need to do for results? Consider instead how much you're likely to do and start with realistic goals. Remember that consistency over intensity is more important. Anything that you like to do and gets you moving can be beneficial. A great idea is to take your workout outdoors. Science shows that green exercise decreases stress, improves mood, and enhances self-control and focus. Any type of physical activity that gets you out in nature can strengthen your willpower. Number four, eat well. Roy Baumeister is a social psychologist well known for his theory of willpower depletion. Since the moment we wake up until we go to sleep, we're constantly using our willpower. A growing body of research proves that resisting temptation takes a toll on us mentally. Some researchers claim that our willpower, just like a muscle, can get tired if overused and it needs fuel. In one of his studies, Bollmeister brought subjects to a room filled with freshly baked cookies aroma and then sat them at a table with one plate of cookies and a bowl of radishes. Some were asked to try out the cookies and others were asked to eat the radishes. After this, they were given a complex geometric puzzle to solve and they were given 30 minutes to complete it. Participants who ate the radishes and resisted the cookies gave up the puzzle about eight minutes in, while the cookie eaters lasted for about 19 minutes on average. Did drawing on willpower to resist the cookies drain them of self-control for the next task? After this work, an array of studies has built a case for willpower depletion or ego depletion. These findings are linked to the glucose levels in our brain. Glucose is our body's fuel for energy. The brain's normal functions like thinking, learning, and memory 
depend completely on it. Exerting our willpower uses a considerable amount of fuel, leaving our brains in a state of alert, trying to get back to normal blood sugar levels. This drop in blood sugar will normally leave us feeling cranky, moody, and more prone to driving to the local bakery. Studies show that sugar, especially the pervasive high fructose corn syrup, can increase the levels of stress hormones in the brain and trigger mental health problems like anxiety and depression. To prevent this, eating whole foods regularly and avoiding refined sugars will keep your glucose levels stable and therefore better equipped when it comes to willpower. Mark Mervin studied ego-depleted individuals and found them persisting longer on a self-controlled task than when they were paid for their efforts or told their efforts would benefit others. So it seems high motivation can be a powerful ally to overcoming depleted willpower. Researchers on self-control also advise that muscles can become fatigued when overused in a short term, but over the long run, they're strengthened by regular exercise. Using your self-control frequently and effectively can lead to stronger willpower muscles. Number five, relax. Heart rate variability is one of our body's physiological indicators of stress and relaxation. It's the time variation of the interval between heartbeats. Everyone's heart varies to some degree. For an average healthy person, the heart will have normal ups and downs. When you're stressed, the sympathetic nerve system takes longer. This is the branch of your nervous system frequently referred to as fight or flight. It enables your body to respond quickly to perceived threats or stress. When this happens, your heart rate goes up, but the variability goes down. So your heart gets stuck at a high rate, leading to physical feelings of anxiety and anger. When you're in a calm, relaxed state, the parasympathetic nervous system is in charge. This is the other part of your nervous system, often called the rest and digest system. You'll experience a lower heart rate and the heart rate variability increases since there are longer pauses between heartbeats. In this relaxed state, you're more likely to manage stress better, resist impulse behavior, exert self-control, and experience a sense of focus and calmness. Recovering alcoholics are more likely to stay sober when they see a drink if their heart rate variability is high, meaning they're in a calm state with longer pauses between heartbeats. In contrast, when their heart variability drops, they're at a greater risk of relapse. Other research shows that people with high heart rate variability are better off at ignoring distractions, delaying gratification, coping with stress. Heart rate variability, a predictor of who will give in to temptation and who will exert willpower. Different factors influence this psychological measurement from pollution to the food we eat. Anything that puts your body or mind in a state of stress can interfere. Anything that allows you to tap into your parasympathetic nervous system will benefit you. Thank you.
2010 survey by the American Psychological Association, the APA, found that 75% of people in the United States report high levels of stress. Americans are also increasingly sleep-deprived, causing an epidemic of poor self-control and focus. Lack of sleep creates impulse control and attention problems similar to attention deficit disorder. This is draining their energy and compiling stress that steals their ability to self-control. Stress will shift your brain to a reward-seeking state. Whatever will make you happy at the moment will become a fixation as you find yourself craving whatever your brain believes that is. This is why people who are stressed are more likely to reach for a cigarette, a drink, or fast food. According to the APA, the most common stress coping strategies are also the least effective ones. Gambling, smoking, playing video games, surfing the internet, watching TV for more than two hours. Some of the most effective stress relief strategies are, instead, exercising or playing sports, praying or attending some sort of service, reading, listening to music, spending time with loved ones, getting a massage, meditating or doing yoga, going out for a walk. To tap into your body's relaxation response, try slowing down your breath to four to six breaths per minute. This activates your prefrontal cortex and increases heart rate variability, thus rescuing your mind from a state of stress, bringing a sense of calm and focus that is more conducive to self-control. We need to know how it gets weakened, don't we? So here are some willpower weakeners. Self-criticism. Yep. Two psychologists, Claire Adams and Mark Leary, invited a group of weight-watching women into the lab and encouraged them to eat donuts and candy for the sake of science. Man, I would have liked to be there for that. (laughs) Their plan was to make half of these dieters feel better about giving in to the donuts. Their hypothesis was that if guilt is a self-controlled deal-breaker, maybe the opposite of guilt would support willpower. The women were told they would be taking part in two different studies. One was on the effect food has on mood, and the other was a taste test. For the first part, all the women were encouraged to eat a donut and drink a full glass of water. This was meant to assure the women felt full and slightly uncomfortable. For the second part of the study, before the taste test, a researcher came in and encouraged half of the women to be kinder to themselves and to remember that everyone gives into temptation every now and then. The other half of the women received no message at all. These women were then asked to sample an array of different candies. All the women were told to eat as much as they liked or as little as they wanted. The women with the self-forgiveness message ate 28 grams of candy. The women who had no message at all ate 70 grams of candy. Contrary to common sense, guilt and shame often don't lead to change, but to overindulging. Feeling bad makes it hard to resist temptation because we want to cover our shame and guilt with instant pleasure. In this case, candy. Study after study shows how self-criticism is correlated with less motivation and worst self-control. 
In contrast, self-compassion, being supportive and kind to yourself as you would to a friend, especially when confronted with failure, is associated with greater motivation and self-control. Temptation, as we know, will weaken our willpower. But did you know that erotic images make men more likely to take financial risks? Or that fantasizing about winning the lottery makes people overeat? Huh. When your brain is in a reward-seeking mode, it releases a neurotransmitter called dopamine. When your system is flooded with dopamine, the appeal of immediate gratification is amplified, leaving you less concerned about your long-term consequences and more prone to temptation of any kind. Subliminal environmental cues create tempting environments and retailers are fully aware of how to trigger your impulses. That's why grocery stores will put their most tempting articles front and center. Food and drink samples in markets will also leave people hungrier and thirstier. Therefore, seeking reward. This reward-seeking mode might result in extra purchases and unintended buying of candy and chocolates. Boy, they're devious, aren't they? Marketers use the promise of reward to sell you their projects. That's why it's a key to reflect before you act. Where does this leave someone with goals and challenges then? Simply summarized, avoid temptation when you can and go easy on yourself when you indulge. Stress, self-criticism, and temptation are some of the biggest obstacles to willpower. Training yourself to notice when you're making a decision rather than acting on autopilot is an effective strategy. Other willpower strengthening activities are exercise, eating healthy, meditation, and relaxation. All of these increase your prefrontal cortex activation and willpower. The essence is to train your brain to pause before you act. Next time you're faced with a willpower challenge, what will you do? To set yourself up for success, know your limitations. Be open and honest with yourself. We've had a little tongue-in-cheek with the idea of never stop quitting. But the fact is, never give up on your pursuit of freedom. No matter what you're needing freed from, you deserve the control and your body is capable of it. share encouragementology with a friend who needs to know they're not alone in this journey of self-discovery, you can visit encouragementology.com or anywhere you stream your content to receive this episode and all others. Follow us on Facebook for additional encouragement throughout the week. So I challenge you, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again with the knowledge that failure is the challenge to shape you for victory. Embody the notion that Quitting anything that isn't serving you is a critical step, but pushing yourself to never stop quitting is the resolve you need to win. I know you can do it. Thank you for listening to Encouragementology with Kendall Boyson, where we find positive ways to handle some of life's challenges. Someone through until the path was clear. That's when I found you. How I wonder.